Welcome to Behind the Chalk, a podcast that brings you tools, strategies, and insights from educators everywhere. I am your host, Lindsay Simpson, and I am so excited to take you behind the scenes and share with you conversations with educators from every level, discussing our passions, insights, research, and experiences across the profession. Thank you for joining as we prepare to take you into an inspiring conversation with a special guest who's going to share his transformational journey through education, which has led him to speaking to motivate others of all ages. And I am certainly one of those people. I cannot wait to dive in with all of you. So Derek is with me today and he's going to be sharing a story that is thought provoking and prompted me to ask many questions regarding how education is set up for our students and how we are supporting our learners. And I would love to hear your thoughts on social emotional learning in the classroom. So as you listen, feel free to reach out on Twitter at ChalkEDU or Instagram at BehindTheChalkEDU. I would really love to start this conversation. It is such a pleasure, Derek, to have you on the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Lindsay? Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm doing amazing. And I'm just so excited to to have this uh, opportunity with you. You know, you and I were able to chat um, about a week ago now, and I have not stopped thinking about that conversation since. So I just am so excited to do this with you um, and get your story out there even more than it already is. Can you share a little bit uh, about yourself for our listeners before we dive into your story, um, who you are? where you're from, although I know that can be quite a long answer uh, recently, um, just to share a little bit about yourself. My name is Derek Fiedler. I'm born and raised in Erie, Pennsylvania. I live in Pittsburgh now. I've been professionally speaking since 2017, and I was the mental health outreach coordinator at Penn State Barron University for two years, and I traveled a lot. That's pretty much yes. the gist. And we're going we're to get into that through this conversation so we can kind of share, you know, that travel and, and how you got there because it's just fascinating. Um, and, and I, you know, I like to start out my episodes with the same question because I'm always fascinated on why and how individuals get the call to enter the field of educating others. And you do it in such a unique way. And it melds so perfectly into your story. But before we dive too deep, I'm going to tweak the question for you a little bit. Uh, Can you share what you were like as a student? Um, And, you know, share, you know, was there a shift along the way and and how you learned, um, you know, what were you like as a student? Who I was as a student, who I was outside the classroom are probably a little, a lot different, but I have had an anxiety disorder since I was about sixth or seventh grade. About I was about sixth grade. I remember the first panic attack I had and where I was. I was in a Walmart with my mom. At this point, it was just these intense anxiety attacks. I mean, physically painful. I, I thought I was physically sick, you know, with, with coming down with something. And then it would just suddenly go away as quickly as it, as it came. And... um as a sixth grader, seventh grader, and you're at a sleepover and you're trying to explain to other sixth graders what a panic attack is or why you're freaking out, 
or anything like that is, is really hard. And so it just kind of became this vicious cycle of first, you know, you were, you're terrified of a lot of irrational things. And then, and then it becomes, oh my God, I'm just scared to have a panic attack at school with friends, stuck on the bus, something like that. So that was really distracting for me. As a student, I didn't get great grades until college. I, I, I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't act out. I wasn't a bad kid. I, I didn't, I wasn't getting in trouble or anything like that. I, I was just really struggling to build relationships with other people, especially boys. I really just, school wasn't a priority for me growing up. And then outside of school, interesting enough, I, I was obsessed with frogs, snakes, and turtles. Like I had this huge pond in my backyard and I, Steve Irwin was my hero. And I just, I, and the more I think back on it, the more I realize that I, I'm, all, I'm the same person I was in a lot of ways to who I was back then. But, you know, I, I had video games and I wouldn't touch them. Um, I, I did, had no, it couldn't keep my attention. And so I'd be in the backyard catching frogs, snakes, and turtles. And, and I collected all these books, right? And I could tell you as a kid, Everything about every animal in my backyard, but if it was a spelling test or math or anything, I struggled and I was actually in, I've been in, I was in special ed since I was a kid diagnosed with ADHD and on, on Concerta at, at that point, because I was told that I, for whatever reason, I was told that I had ADHD and a learning disability. What were the other perceptions of you in high school? You know, other students, other teachers, um, what were the perceptions of you from other people? I, I was an athlete. I played sports all year round and I had a really tough time fitting in with the other athletes. I got bullied a lot, a lot of nicknames, but I, I wasn't bad at sports, but I, I didn't ever stand out. I, I played varsity soccer as a freshman. You know, there was a lot of hazing and things like that. I had a friend circle and, and from the surface, you wouldn't be able to tell, but it, it was really hard to get in, to feel fully accepted. Um, mm -hmm. And I believe that I had such a hard time making relationships because I, my lack of confidence, my insecurities, and you know how like, you know, those people who, you know, I was one of them who it's like, you want a relationship. So it, I, like, I think you said this while we were having that conversation about it's not the attention that you want. It's the relationship that you want yes. so badly, but you repel people when you try way, way, way too hard to other students. I think that was, was my issue. I also went, this is definitely a factor and I'm just going to be honest. I went to a, the most private public school you could ever go to. And it was extremely clicky to other teachers. There were a few that really believed in me. I had a couple coaches that believed in me, but it depended on the sport. You know, soccer was very, there was a lot of camaraderie. It was, there was 11 kids on the field. So it's a lot easier to you know participate and there's not as much politics. And that coach really believed in me. And then there was, shout out to Senorita Espada. She was my Spanish teacher. You had to have two years of Spanish in high school. And I needed a 73 or 76 to pass the class. And I got a 78. And I just remembered, I, 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 like I said, I don't remember what she taught, but I remember how she made me feel. And I just remember that she believed in me. And then to this day, she still, you know, has been rooting for me. And You didn't have a great school experience, um, you know, in terms of, in terms of academics and, you know, having relationships with others, it doesn't seem like there would be too much motivating you to go to college besides those teachers who believed in you. What made you get there? What made you want to apply and go that, that next step? You're absolutely right. And the thing is, you know, 
when you tell a kid his entire life that he's dumb and not straight up, you know, I mean, let's be honest, it's tier one, two and three, but it's really, you know, what the other kids call it, the dumb class, the average kids and the, and the gifted kids. Trust me, it goes in both ways. You know, there's kids who have been in special ed their entire life and they're like, well, I must be stupid because everyone told me I'm stupid. And then there's people who aren't that intelligent that were in the gifted class that have all the confidence in the world and still got to be successful just because of that confidence. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so That's I don't exactly right. <laughs> so I don't know like, like the, the answer to that, but at you as teachers, I hope ask that question of how do we change these labels and start, stop labeling these children before they even have a chance to prove themselves. You know, I once had a class and we won't get this too too much into this because I really want to focus on your story, but you just made me think of it. I had a class once that was a challenge. There was a lot of needs all over the spectrum and there was a lot of behaviors in this class. I remember, and I was in the beginning of my teaching career and I remember a veteran teacher telling me, be careful with the words that you use. If they hear you saying that they're a bad class, how else are they going to be? I had them as fifth graders that t- at that time. And they, she said they've had kindergarten, first, second, third, and fourth grade being told that they're this bad class. So, of course, they have to live up to that and be the bad class. And, uh, yeah, so I had to completely change the words that I used. And I, I think for, like, a month straight, every hour... I would be purposeful would be like, you guys are so great. (laughs) And and was there a change? Did you notice a change? There was, there was a change. And I remember one student in particular, and it was my, during my student teaching. So I was like as green as green could come. But I remember one student in particular saying, you know, I'm, I'm not used to being a good kid, but I kind of like it. I'm like, dude, you're a great kid. People have seen it. You're absolutely right. So what w- your words matter, how you speak to yourself is is the same as how you speak to your children and stuff. You know, if, if you talk about yourself in a negative way, you're going to, it's going to have an effect on you. And if you, and so a lot of what we teach in meditation is positive reinforcement. If you have a negative thought about yourself, like, man, I'm such an idiot or, you know, whatever those, ch- those that chat in your head all the time, you have to reinforce it with, no, I'm great. I can do this. I can do this, you know, whether you believe it or not, but those words do matter. So what, you know, positive reinforcements or what, um, you know, leaps of faith did you have to get you to to try to get to college? It all happened by accident. (laughs) Well, I'll say this first. I had a counselor in high school who told me that, that I probably would, wouldn't be called, I wouldn't be college material. And they took all the special ed kids, me, and another student in particular that I that was an athlete with me, and we would get made fun of on the, the sports teams. We would they'd have dumb offs, and they'd ask us like trivial questions. But there was so much pressure on it, you were you couldn't even think about it. And loser got a plunger in the, a used plunger in the face. So him and I would go. We're like, oh, like why don't you guys shadow some trade schools and shadow some stuff? And even though trade schools are wonderful and amazing, and you make more money doing trade schools than you would going to college, we, there was a stigma about it. And it's like, yes. you know, it, it's just more, rein, more negative reinforcement. So I, I really did give up. And I was like, so it was by accident. I, I was my freshman year of, of high school. I decided to do track for the first time. I went to a private school that didn't have track and field in middle school. And I tried the high jump and I'm only five foot 10. And I 
the first time I ever jumped in practice, I jumped over the bar backwards. You lean, you land on your shoulders and my knee came right into my face and I broke my nose bleeding everywhere. And the coach, they ended up having to take me to, my dad took me to urgent care and the coach was like, listen, I know that you broke your nose, but you have to try this again. It was Coach McKinney, and he was one of those people that really believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. And um, freshman year, I did okay, right? I didn't qualify for districts. I jumped five foot ten. I jumped the same height that I that I am, or maybe five eight. And then my my sophomore year, you know, high jump was a thought, but it wasn't really, you know, there wasn't anything of it yet. And then I don't know what happened, but I went from jumping five ten to six foot four, and over, you know, within by my sophomore junior year i think it was sophomore year because yeah i jumped six four and then i choked at districts and then the next year i got really serious about it i quit basketball because basketball was i was a bench professional bench warmer my whole life and i was like <laughs> i'm gonna focus on 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 track and now all of a sudden i had this meaning i had this purpose right and that's what these kids need is teach them confidence and then they need to have purpose and meaning because the opposite of depression, of anxiety, of addiction is connection to each other and purpose. I suddenly had this purpose. Now I wanted to get good grades because I wanted to stay on the track team. You know, I, I, I didn't care about education yet. And I'll get to that. But it was it was now I had a motivation right indirectly. It doesn't have to be directly loving, you know, loving, edu- get, you know, school. So my junior year, I jumped I jumped six foot six and tied the school record at districts and then I was seated first in the state of Pennsylvania in the high jump my junior year that's amazing thank you and um it it scares the hell out of me to think where I'd be right now if that didn't happen if track didn't happen if I didn't not that I was so successful but that I had a meaning and a purpose that I found something and so the kid who thought he wasn't gonna get go to college. I, I mean, letters stacked in my locker from colleges asking me to come. And, you know, there was the D1 schools who looked at me and said, you know, you can jump high enough, but your grades suck. Can I say that? <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was a real awakening. And I was like, damn, I wish I tried a little harder in school. <laughs> I think that's one of my only regrets in life that I didn't try a little harder in school, but you know, everything happens for a reason. Um, it does, it does. So yeah, I got, I ended up going to Slippery Rock University. Um, it was cheaper to go there than to go get on scholarship to go somewhere else. Even on scholarship, going somewhere else, there's not a lot of money in track. How did it feel to you when, when you were not only getting these letters, but then when you accepted the school? Because as a, as a person who has struggled with academics, you know, when I first, it was, it was one thing for someone to accept me, but then for me to accept them and for me to realize, yeah, I belong there. I belong doing these things. I can do these things. You know, that's a, that's another shift in itself. So how did it feel for you to get accepted to a college and know like, yeah, I can do that. I could do this. Yeah, it, it definitely, it was a confidence booster, but it doesn't happen overnight. Um, It's a process. Yeah. And it definitely, there definitely isn't, it's the self-worth like, like, do I deserve this? You know, is this really real? Is this happening? Um, things like that, but, oh my God, I fell in love with college. I loved college. That was some of the best times of my entire life. Um, talk about that, you know, so going from high school where you of course had some teachers who are wonderful and, and some teachers who are not so much 
know, what was your experience like when you first got to college? Was there a shift in what you were experiencing compared to what you experienced in high school? You know, what was that difference that made you fall in love? 100%. And this is the thing that I, I wish that I, I want to tell high schoolers and kids still in school is that when I got to college, I learned more about myself in the first four months and four years in high school. And obviously it's because you're on your own, you know, college is more than just going to school. It's about learning people skills and being on your own. But I, I majored in track. I was undeclared because I wasn't even thinking about going to school, you know, and I'm like, oh, now I got to go to school. And, you know, like every other 18 year old, I'm like, let me invest a lot of money into something that I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, so I, I took all my like, you know, prerequisites, like writing courses and, you know, history class and all that extra stuff. And I was in this class with this professor. I can't remember his name. I know I can remember what he looks like. And he was it was a history class. And he was so passionate about what he was teaching. Like he could not wait to wake up that morning and teach this class. And he talked about more than just history. You know, he talked about himself and he showed us that he was a human being. And Mm -hmm. I was like, this is different. This is not how most teachers acted in high school. But also, I don't know for sure, but some professors actually make enough living that they don't have to get a second job. Unlike a lot of teachers do. Right. Um, so that might be a factor, you know, having a purpose and a meaning. And then and then I fell in love with reading and I didn't touch a freaking I didn't touch a book all of high school. Never read. And there was this other teacher and there was a lot of athletes in it because we had first pick in, in our classes. And so there was a lot of athletes in the class and the books she had us read. I couldn't put them down. And I, at the end of the class, I asked her if she had any more books to recommend. And then by my senior year, I, well, I declared environmental, I switched, I was in business and I went into environment, environmental studies with a focus in GPS, GIS. I really liked it. I, I looked forward to going to class. I, I started having a passion for, you know, I always had a passion for nature, but then I started having this passion for the environment and, and things like that. And um, talking about a professor that really, that changed my life forever, Dr. Patrick Burkhart. I was, I was in his 100 level geology class and it was this huge auditorium he was he was I mean he'll laugh at me say this he was crazy and he knows that um (laughs) he he yells he walks around but in a in a passionate way like like yelling and like talking about all this stuff and about and then he then he talked about all and this is what this was the the shift it was this was the second shift I guess he talked about how he took students all over the world to um, to do research. And he talked about how he takes students to various places and he calls it, he says, get in the van. Like, that's his term. That's, that's what he <laughs> oh, said, get in the van. And he said, I'm recruiting scientists and anyone that wants to come with me, let me know. And um, after class, he walked up to his office and I followed him up the stairs and I went into his room and he, he's a, he's a, you know, a tough Irish guy and I come in this emotional kid and I'm like, I'm like about to cry. And I'm like, I have an anxiety disorder and I have a fear of traveling. And, you know, I I just feel like I got to see this stuff and I can't let this anxiety and stuff hold me back from, you know, you know, being scared. And, you know, I just like spilled my guts, this guy. And he was like, he didn't even know what to say. You know, he was like, at least right off the bat, you know, um, and so I left the room and I'm like, I don't know why I just spilled my guts to that guy. You know, I don't, I don't know what the purpose of that was. And a week, la- a week later, he said, hey, Derek, how would you like to go on an expedition to the Badlands, South Dakota with me? And I was so excited. 
but I was also absolutely terrified. And it was such a weird thing to be so fascinated with traveling and doing all this stuff, but also be terrified at the same exact time. And I think we all, all of us feel like that about certain things that, but we don't ever talk about it because we're, we're, we're ashamed or we think that like someone like me just is, it doesn't feel those things. Um, and so we, so I, I prepared for that summer. And like I said, uh, to rewind with, with the specifics of my anxiety, I was, a, a, I don't know, I was never diagnosed OCD, but um, germaphobe, like mm-hmm. huge germaphobe. You know, I, uh, I think Italians, especially, we like to keep things clean. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> the, the, the saran wrap on the, on the sofa, on the sofa, the furniture, that didn't happen in my house, but my grandmother did. Um, but get a little squeak when you sit down. <laughs> oh my God. I, I couldn't, my best friend, John still talks to this day, how if he double dipped in my cheese, I freaked out. But he, one time we were eating, I forgot about this, but one time, cause you almost forget about how far you came sometimes, but um, in college, I, he set my fork down on, on a table when it was sitting on my plate and I freaked out about it being dirty and had to wash it. And then when I was traveling for the track team, um, I'd have to have this like safety bag, right. Of like Pepto-Bismol, Advil, water bottle, Xanax, just in case I had an anxiety attack when we would go to track meets and, I, and then I'd have to perform. And, um, you know, going into that summer, into that trip was really, really, really hard. I, I, I couldn't sleep the night before. I, I was getting sick, physically sick, and it was two weeks living out of a tent, no cell phone service in the Valley of South Dakota, waking up with bison outside of a tent. It was the first time I had ever been east of Ohio living in Pennsylvania, or west of Ohio. Um, but, you know, my family didn't travel much. My mom was just like me. She, had a, she was terrified of traveling. At the end of the two weeks, h- how was it? Life-changing. Life-changing. My whole life changed, and I knew it. I, I found my I found my next passion because what happened that year too was that I stopped the high jump and I started doing the decathlon, which is ten events over a course of two days. And I ended up my junior year um, qualifying for nationals and missing the school record by uh, like a hundred points, which is not much. Yeah. And that was that was that happened right before the summer on the Badlands trip and. Um, I won conference championships, 16th in the nation, right? And that was my, tr- my, tr- one of the biggest motive, one a big motivation, not all of it. I mean, because I love Trek. I love going to practice, but I mean, who didn't want, well, I mean, why else would you sacrifice four hours a day? Um, I wanted to win. And I thought that when I won, that my life was going to change, that people were going to look at me different, that um, I was going to look at myself different, that all, that, that was going to be the thing that changed. And there, right, there was this high, high for like a week, you're mm-hmm. in the newspaper, People are congratulating you, track team threw me a party, and then everything goes back to normal. Right. And, and you're like, oh shit, yeah. this isn't this isn't the thing that makes me happy. Right. Yeah, it's and, temporary. Right. And it's like, oh my God, if that's not what made me happy, then what does? And I went on that trip to the Badlands. And when I came home, I got so depressed. So depressed. It's like one of the almost one of those things where like once you see it, you can't ever go back in a way. Right. And this is all reflection. Yeah. I did not know any of this like while it was happening. I didn't know any of this. And I didn't even know what was happening to me. Um, and so I, going into my senior year, um, people could tell there was something different. There was something off. Um, started drinking a lot heavier, partying a lot harder. And because I just had these, this heavy, heavy depression. And um, there was one specific day that I, I remember that I, it was, I woke up and my alarm went off and I, I turned it off 
and I rolled over and I slept all day till like six in the afternoon. I didn't get out of bed. And John came over, my best friend, double cheese guy. And because I missed practice, and he's like, dude, what's up? And I'm like, like, I didn't drink a glass of water today. I'm like, I forgot. I'm like, I couldn't get out of bed and I don't know why. And I started skipping classes and I, I couldn't perform with track and it, it just so heavy. And I never in my life, never in, if you, I never would have dreamed that even a year before that, that I would have quit the track prematurely. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of confusion about on the track team about what was happening. People took it definitely personally because the way you win the team championships is, you know, each event first, second, and third that you get points towards your team. So slippery rock. And I was a big factor in getting points. And so when I quit, people took that personally. And they didn't yeah. understand. They didn't understand. I don't blame them for understanding because I didn't even know what was going on. It was happening to me, you know, and in the way I coped with it, with drinking and, and, you know, skipping practice and stuff, everyone's like, well, he just, he, he punched his ticket. He got his championship and he's, he's out, he's ready to party. And that wasn't the case. And I tried quitting two or three times before I actually did. And I'll never forget somebody on the track team who was, um, higher above he kept trying to convince me not to quit convince me not to quit and he can i how much swearing can i do he he said said if you he said derek i think if you quit the track team you're fucked and that's when i knew i was done and i thought i was going to drop out with one semester left and barely graduated i mean i got through that and it was just this tense depression that i've never felt since then and you've had, you've had these ups and you've had these downs you know, what was able to bring you back up again? Because you're not there now. You've had this amazing transformation. So even after, you know, winning the championships and realizing that that's, that's not what would make you happy, how did you figure that out? How did you get back up to being in the place where you're at now? I fought like hell. I just fought so hard. And it was one of the hardest it's the hardest thing I've, one of the hardest things i've ever done and um i just i have this attitude that everything happens for a reason i just have this attitude positive or negative and i've i don't know where it came from but i just i just believed that there was some reason that i was going through this and i don't i didn't know why at the time and i just i i, I don't know i definitely wanted to give up i definitely had thoughts of suicide and you know all of that there was a point where i begged my girlfriend you know at the time to take me to the hospital but it, it, I just, I don't know. I, I guess I just believe that there was something that happened for a reason. And, and I always had a meaning to, to serve, you know, to survive. And that's the title of my talk that the suffer and survive to find meaning is, is, uh, you know, the next thing was traveling um, for me, even though it terrified me. And, and when I graduated college, I, I, I guess I don't know. I, I, does that answer your question? It does. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's just recap for just a second. So, you know, you, you had a struggle in high school and you were able to get through to a college on scholarship and, and you were able to, you know, be on this track team and, and achieve one of your goals and then, you know, go through some more difficulties and struggle to, to find, you know, purpose and meaning. Um, and this is, this is an education show, right? So, you know, we're, we are trying to send out a message to teachers and how to improve our practice. So, I'm sure many are out there thinking the same thing that I did when I first heard your story. You know, it's amazing. You're amazing. And the fact that you were able to overcome so many obstacles is truly inspiring. But Thank you. what we also, yeah, but what we also want to think about is how 
we can hear your story and challenge people like myself to become better educators. So what would you say to those teachers you had, um, let's say like, you know, in high school who were not passionate, like the ones that you had in college or who were not motivating, like some of the other ones that you did, um, you know, what would you say to some of those high school teachers? I would say um, to allow yourself to be more vulnerable and to have confidence yourself. You, you're a mirror for these kids, right? The same with their parents. And whether you know it or not, they know exactly how you're feeling. They know exactly what's going on. I mean, if you've ever been in a meeting and, and someone walks in to do a PowerPoint or something, you know before they even speak if they're confident, if they're not confident. And um, I just believe there's power in vulnerability. And I think that one of my, something that I've been blessed with is the power of, vulner- of being vulnerable and allowing other people to, to express these things inside that they can't get out. And so if I can, and it's like, if I can go on a stage and I can say all this private things and be like, listen, it's not a big deal. Here I am still doing well and successful and people don't think of me differently. You know, th- this is things that you can do in your classroom. You know, obviously oversharing is not appropriate, but, you know, showing them that you're a human being, showing them, hey, I had a bad day last yesterday or whatever, giving them little little things here and there, um, but not oversharing. And and like you said before, just reinforcing confidence, 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 confidence. If you want your your students to get better grades um, and just overall well-being, like um just building confidence in them and finding their meaning, finding their passion, helping these kids find a passion. I mean, yeah, learning your ABCs and how to do algebra is really important. But if you don't have confidence, if you don't have these coping skills, there's, you know, you don't have anything. You can't, you can't get good grades. It's impossible. And maybe you can't do this. Maybe you're busy, right? You have an agenda. You got a grade, you know, you have your own life. You don't have time to do all this extra stuff, but what you do is a voice. And you need to talk to the administration and everything. And we can't keep doing these things the way we've been doing them. We can't, you know, we, we practice and preach and talk about mindfulness and all this stuff and how we all know that, that school, that our American education is not where it should be, but we got to get louder. We got to demand these things and we got to think outside the box, you know, we got to teaching meditation and resilience skills in school um, these kids get to college and they don't know how to cook. They don't know how to feed themselves. And then, you know, I've been out of college for six years and I've been in a lot of places and worked a lot of different jobs and, you know, and I, I, people don't know how to feed themselves. They don't know how to take (laughs) care of themselves. And we all know this. We have this, you probably have this conversation with your teachers every day, but what are we doing with these words? We gotta, we gotta, we gotta demand change. We gotta demand changes in the classroom. And, you know, I think that just like these kids that are getting bullied, like teachers got to speak up. We got to speak up and stop just, you know, and I know teachers are, but I'm just reiterating that and I'm with them and I want them to get fired up to demand these changes because, yeah, you know, well, I think that's good, Derek, because I can I can hear the passion in your voice and, and I'm lucky enough that I can see you on the other side of the screen, whereas, um, you know, my listeners are only hearing it and. I know they can hear your passion just like I can, but I'm also blessed that I'm able to see that passion. And sometimes we need someone like you because 
you're right. We as teachers talk about this all the time. You walk into any faculty room where you have a bunch of teachers eating lunch, and I guarantee you this is a conversation that happens at least a couple of times a week. But when you have it over and over and over and over, the passion starts to dwindle. It, it becomes normal. This just becomes our way of life. And we need people like you to keep that passion and keep it fired up so that we can take these words and make change. And so those are some powerful words to teachers. And so now I want to ask you, what would you say to students who feel the way that you did, um, who felt dumb and who felt like they were labeled in a way that kind of put them in a box? I have a couple answers to that and separately, but just hold on and ride out the storm because just hold on for dear life and believe that something after high school is, you know, you can get, you can figure this stuff after high school because, you know, a lot of kids, you know, have horrible, you know, family lives and they don't even have a chance to try to hierarchy of needs you know if you don't have those things at the bottom you you can't get anywhere else and I think for a lot of kids just leaving that environment is is one of the only things that's going to really really make the biggest difference but you know you know I just want to tell them that it gets better that it it really does if you want it to get better if you choose for it to get better you know and this is the other thing is attitude and choice you know we've all suffered we all have been through unspeakable things, but it's what you, and that's not your, any fault of your own, but what you do have control over is your, is a choice. And, you know, I made decisions that anyone else can make and you have to choose to want to get better and to help yourself. And of course, all this stuff is so hard and trauma and your past suffering is so difficult, but it's not going to fit happen. And that's the other thing that I think these students a lot of people don't know about choice is that choice is it when you make that choice it doesn't mean that all of a sudden your brain works differently that you just have this you wake up the next day and you have this new attitude it takes a long time and it's taken me 30 years uh and it it just it's so hard to tell a kid this is why i'm struggling because because when you're in high school that is your only world you don't know anything outside of those walls so i could say this till they're blue in the face you know, all I can yes, share. Is and my- I, I'm going to jump in real quick because I, that, that resonates with me. Um, and you know, I, I haven't shared much about my own journey on this podcast yet. And while I'm not going to take the time to dive into it right now, um, I really, I, you know, cause I want to keep my, my piece short. I want to focus on you. Um, but oh, you're fine. You I know, want to hear it too. <laughs> uh, but you know, my high school's was experience was not great. Um, you know, I'd experienced trauma while in high school, and that led to to a difficult time in in a few different categories. But the the reason, the generalization for teachers is that the reason why you go into teaching is because you were such a successful student. And for me, it's really the opposite. I really struggled and decided that I wanted to provide a different experience for students like me. And what you had just said reminded me of this because I once had um, a wonderful counselor who told me, you know, it's not your fault. What you're doing is not your fault. And the responses you're having to trauma is not your fault because you have a toolbox without any tools. So you're just kind of grasping at straws and without having the proper tools to express yourself and to handle these big emotions at such a young age, this is what you get. 
And this is why you're doing what you're doing. So, you know, why did you want to go get into schools and can get into the business of educating others through speaking when being a student was so difficult for you and because you do have anxiety about certain things? Um, why do this? If, if great question, because if you would have told, if you would have asked when I, when I, after college, when I decided to start traveling and living out of my car, if you would have told me, Hey, this is, you're going to do this and then become a, a public speaker, I would have been like, you're out of your effing mind. There's no <laughs> way I'm doing that. Like, that, no way. How much time do we have? I'll try to, I can talk to <laughs> Give me this. <laughs> so I, I lived after I graduated college and I realized I was dealing with this depression. I realized that if I didn't figure this out, there was no way that I was going to be able to be in any healthy relationships, intimate or not. There was no way that I was going to be able to choose the career, have the rationality. I knew my thoughts weren't rational. I, I was aware of that. And my therapist had taught me about cognitive behavioral therapy and how the brain works with, that's another thing that students and teachers need to do is constantly study and constantly doing your own work and being curious about your own flaws. And I really, I learned from this therapist that the way you get over anxiety is cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure therapy. But I'm not talking about the old school exposure therapy where you're, you know, you're dead, you were afraid of water and your dad threw you in the, <laughs> the lake and now you'll never, now you can barely take a bath, you know? What it is is about slowly introducing that stimuli into uh, in, this person into that stimuli. And a really interesting conversation I had yesterday with a professor from the University of Central Florida was there, there was one particular patient who, um, while she was in the bathtub as a kid, something happened where like the door fell or something crashed and fell on top of the bathtub or something. And then when, as she got older, she was terrified of taking showers and baths, getting into the bath. And so what they did was they started off with just like a wet wipe and just that mm -hmm. and in doing the wet wipe in, in the bathtub. Right. And then it was like, okay, we're going to turn on the bathtub, fill it with water, but you're not going to get in. And then the next week it's, we're going to get in the bathtub and you're only going to go up to your feet and you're going to use the wet wipes. Right. And what's happening here is that your amygdala is your fight or flight part of your brain. It's the, about the size of an almond and it's constantly learning whether you know it or not. And so I had a fear of traveling. Right. And my amygdala is telling me traveling is dangerous, traveling is dangerous, traveling is dangerous, don't do it, avoid it. And what I realized was that if I, the more I opened my, my, the more I went into my, the uncomfortable zone, the more, the bigger my comfort zone became. <laughs> so I, for whatever reason, I uh, decided, you know, not for whatever reason, that was the reason that I decided to do what I did on top of, I always just had a, I had this huge passion, depression, made me realize it was, it was in a way a near-death experience. And I was like, I need to live life to the fullest. I, I, anxiety has been holding me. Anxiety and depression has been holding me back. At least I felt like my whole life. And I've watched what it's done to people. And I was like, I, was like, I need to do this. Um, I think my, I'm bipolar. And I think that my, my impulsiveness also was a gift and a curse. <laughs> Yeah, but um, I I got bartending jobs and I, I went all over the country and I was writing everything down in journals. Um, so that happened. Let's to me. get to that. Let's get to that. And I know we're heading to the end of our conversation, but I don't want to let you go 
without talking about those journals and how they came to be. So you had this whole journey of transformation that has led to these paradigm journals. So can you share what those are and their significance? I wrote down everything that happened to me. I was journaling. That's how it became the paradigm journals. I want to cause a paradigm shift in the way we see mental illness was after I traveled around the country, I decided to just keep going. And I went to Costa Rica and super long story short, I canceled my flight home because I felt like I was supposed to be there for longer. And I ended up having a conversation with a girl from France in a hostel who had a travel blog and I shared my story with her and she was like, would you like to be on my blog? And I said, no way. And, <laughs> uh, she convinced me a couple days later to do it. And I talked about what my story at, to that point on this beach in Costa Rica. And, um, it ended up getting like 8,000 views and people were messaging me from all over the country or all over the world. And I was like, wow, this this was the most gratifying thing I'd ever done in my life. And then from there, it was giving my TED talk in 2017. And that's how I'm where I am. That's amazing. So how do you think your story can create that paradigm shift in education for better mental health and social emotional learning for all? Like I said, the power of vulnerability and, I, and the power of storytelling and just realizing that they're not alone, that people, that you're not going through this alone. And I'm still going through it. You know, I'm not perfect. I have not figured it all out. You know, I, I'm, I'm not going to stand up there and go, hey, look at me. This is what I've done and you can do it too. I mean, yeah, in a way, but it's not me as in like, this is the way I figured it out. You know, everyone has their own. Depression is not like that thing. Depression and mental health is not like that thing. Like a, it's not like a nurse, it's not like the flu, right? If all of us took, if, uh, if when we have the flu, no matter who it is, ABC, take Advil, this and that. With depression, it, it's so unique to the in, individual. So backpacking and writing and traveling and storytelling is my truth, but everyone has mm -hmm. their own truth. So what I'm trying to do is teach people to find meaning in their suffering and turn their suffering into something positive. That is, that's just so powerful. Thank you so much for sharing. Do you have any resources that would help teachers in social emotional learning in the classroom and you know how would they access those resources my research my personal resources or resources that i recommend either a couple books i recommend is Eckhart tolle the power now is the most important book i ever read um Yohan harry was the person that i i um used his theories for creating my doing my outreach mental health outreach at penn state baron Yohan harry he wrote the book Lost Connections, The Truth Behind Depression, and then Chasing the Scream, which is um, a story about uh, the truth behind addiction. And those books were amazing. Besides, and what about your resources, the things that you personally could do, whether it's, uh, you know, websites, courses, coming out as a speaker? You know, what if somebody wants you? What if they want Derek? So they can reach me at theparadigmjournals.com. My Instagram handle is the underscore paradigm underscore journals. And then my Facebook page, same thing, Paradigm Journals, Derek Fiedler. I give, I travel the whole country giving talks from anywhere from grade school all the way up through universities and conferences. And I also am continuing teaching workshops that I've started at Penn State Barron, um, which is meditation workshops, mindfulness workshops. We're actually working on creating i'm working with penn state baron and gannon university in erie 
um, working on a mindfulness app, actually, that should hopefully be done by the end of this summer. That's exciting. Thank you very much. I am, I am very excited, too. And I really, I really appreciate you I think many could take advantage on. of a mindfulness app. I know there's so many out there. Um, but yeah, I, mindfulness is one of those things that I think many people want to do, but they just don't know how. So I think an app like that certainly will be utilized. Exactly. And that's what this app is going to be is taking something that's so abstract. You know, it's not mindfulness sounds like this like simple thing, right? Sit and breathe, but there's just so much, you know, to it. That's not tangible. It's, it's this out. And so you have to try to break it down into the tiniest little bits and pieces. And that's what we're trying to do. And yeah. we want to make- tell you, my mother followed the Grateful Dead and fish and sold grilled cheese out of the back of her van. <laughs> yes, she blows glass. She's a beautiful human being. And she is a certified yoga instructor. And she preaches meditation and mindfulness. And I love her, but I've never been able to do it. Because as soon as I close my eyes, I just start thinking of all the things that I should be doing. <laughs> so well, I need a mindfulness app. So I will be using it as soon as you put it out there. Good. That makes me feel great. And if you ever <laughs> want any, any help or whatever, you know, you just give me a call and ask me some questions and I'd be happy to help. Perfect. So I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I, I really enjoyed hearing your story, sharing your story. And just taking the time to reflect on my practice as an educator and how I can be better. And I think, I think really at the heart of edu- every educator, that's what we want to do. And like you said, it's about that reflection. And it's, it's about how we can reach our truth and identify our flaws and um, start spreading that and supporting our students in, in different ways, maybe ways that we have never done before but we certainly can start now. It's never too late. Never so too late. Of, and so all of the links that you have shared, your your Instagram, all those ways that they can reach out to you, those will be in the show notes. So listeners, please scroll down on whatever podcast player you're listening to and uh, reach out to Derek, follow him. You are going to want to follow his journey. Believe me, I can tell it is just an amazing, amazing thing that we were able to connect and you were able to hear it. And there's, there's so much going on in the future. I just know it. So thank you again. And listeners, remember, we are wanting to hear your experience with mental health and social emotional learning in the classroom. What has gone well, right? Some of you, I'm sure, are rocking that journey in your classroom. And we want to hear how you're doing it. What's been a struggle? Maybe Derek can help. So head on over to Twitter at ChalkEDU or Instagram at BehindTheChalkEDU. Scroll down, get his info, and share and connect with both of us. Tag us in your comments. And let's continue this conversation together. Let's do it. Let's put words into action. So we're going to just end it with that. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you for joining me on today's episode of Behind the Chalk. Want to hear more? Subscribe and review the podcast wherever you like to listen and follow the podcast on Twitter at ChalkEDU and on Instagram at BehindTheChalkEDU.